We have come to John chapter 5, verse 25 through 29. This passage comes to us in the middle of Christ's teaching. A discourse here. We've said in the past that John has organized his literature in hopes of showing us who to believe in for eternal life. I write these things that you may know Him, and by knowing Him that you may have life in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose in John chapter 20 laid out by the writer of our passage this morning. He's organized his entire writing around this concept of helping us believe in Christ. And he does that around some signs or miracles and teachings. And we've come to the third teaching here. The first contained in John 3 was the Nicodemus about being born again. A discourse, a teaching on being born again. The second, the woman at the well about living water. Jesus said, I am the living water. Basically, if you drink from me, you'll never thirst again. That's the concept. He's going to reiterate that again later in a teaching there before all of the people. And so we know he's the living water. And now we've come to the third discourse, following the third sign. It's it's amazing that, that the mind of the writer here places these things together so that we can grab who Jesus is and know Him and believe in Him and have life. I said last week, people are fixated with life. We are born desperate to live long lives. We want to give the impression that even when things are breaking down and deteriorating all around us, including our bodies, that life is continuing. I was watching just briefly last night the Democratic debate. The YouTube debate that was being played there, Anderson Cooper's show was replaying that. It's interesting to me. Amy picked up on it. I wasn't going to say anything. You know Hillary's had a facelift. She really has. You, you can just see it. Just take a picture from a few years ago and look at today. Why would she do this? Because she wants to give the impression that she's young, vibrant, full of life, project an image. We're all projecting the image of life. Every man cradle to grave. It doesn't matter how sick we are, how sick we look. We are going to give off the impression that we still have a lot of life to live. And you might be guilty of it just like I am. Somebody asks you how you feel. What's your response? I feel fine. I feel good. Now, it doesn't matter that our bodies are breaking down. And when we got up this morning, we were creaking and popping in places we've never heard ourselves creak and pop. It doesn't matter that when we woke up this morning... That because of sin in the world, in the environment, the breakdown of the environment God created perfect and innocent in the garden. It doesn't matter that because of some of the rogue molecules in the world, in the human mind, I'm now sick with a virus that my body can't fight off. I'm running a fever. I feel like I'm about to puke. When you ask me how I'm doing, I say, oh, I'm doing good. I'm thankful. All all these replies we give... Why? Because we want to project an image of health. I'm okay. I'm doing good. I'm going to live forever. And if we're not going to live forever, we at least want to go to the grave looking like we could live forever. That's the concept of the world when it comes to life. Now, Jesus is also talking often and everywhere, especially in the Gospel of John, about life. 
But his life is much different than the life we're seeking to project, isn't it? We find strange phrases when Jesus talks about life. We find phrases like, He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood shall live forever. We find statements like, Drink from this well and you'll never thirst again. I mean, contrary to everything physical in our lives, the spiritual life is shown to be abundant and growing in power and influence, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a contrast in, in, in the Gospel of John that is very, very obvious, and it's obvious in our text today. That there's a great contrast between what's taking place for our bodies physically and what's going on if you believe in Christ spiritually. There's a great contrast to those two things. And I, I hope we see that today as we leave. I hope we leave with that on our minds, that there's a great contrast. And, and the writer is magnificent in his organization of his material. He places the lame man there for our example. There at the beginning of five, before Jesus is teaching on his own unity with the Father and the power and the sovereignty that he has over all things, including life and death, and resurrection, he gives us an example of a man who is helpless. He's helpless. And notice, we noticed when we were looking at it, if you look back through that passage in verses 1 through 17, you'll see Jesus asks a very contrasting question, doesn't he? Man's laying there among a bunch of sick people, can't move on his own, lame, completely paralyzed, I believe, even beyond lame. And Jesus says, pointing at him, do you want to be well? That's an that's a, that's a in-the-face question, isn't it? Go to RMC today. Walk down the halls there. Go into someone's room who is paralyzed and cannot move on their own and say, would you like to move on your own? Would you like to be well? I would be willing to... Believe that every person would say yes. Yes. Notice the man's response. Well, I'd like to do that, but you know, I can't get myself healed. That's what he's saying. I can't do it. I don't have anybody to help me. And to that, Jesus responds, Get up, take up your bed, and never cease walking. That's, that's the tense of the language there for Jesus. Never, never be paralyzed again. Never be unable to walk again. Continually walk is the concept. So Jesus heals him. And then he, as he's confronted by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he goes into a discourse, a teaching about his equality with the Father. Why he can say, get up and walk. He gives us the answer to that. Why He can do it on the Sabbath day. He gives us the answer to that. Why we should be concerned with the fact that Jesus heals. Isn't that really what you want to know? Let's just get honest. Gut level here with one another. You don't really care about a man that was laying next to the pool there at Bethesda, do you? I mean, the reality is, I don't know who that guy is. Have no contact with him. I can't even picture really, I can try, but I can't even picture his world because I don't live in that world. What happened to him some 2,000 years ago, really, when it gets down to everyday life, I don't, I mean, it just doesn't matter, it doesn't seem, does it? You might have that thought as you approach this. 
And yet Jesus would say, what happened to him is infinitely and eternally valuable to me and to you every day. Every day. And today's passage shows us why. It's eternally valuable to you, to me, in our everyday life. And our people cry out in our world, give me practical things. Oh, doctrine's good, but just get to the meat of it. I want to know what, I want the rubber meets the road. Well, I want to tell you something. Theology is rubber meets the road. We don't need more practical. We do not. Our world is filled with it. Go to the bookstore. Everybody's saying how you can do this. And how you can be this. What we need is a strong dose of who Jesus is. We need a right theology so that our right living can come thereafter. We don't need to walk around like pretenders having our best life now. We need to walk around the authentic, born again, living people of God. Who because He lives, we live. And because He is righteous, we are righteous. And because He did good, we do good. And today's message, I, I want to be honest with you up front, is going to step on toes. It stepped all over mine. It's going to step all over yours. If i got to suffer, you got to suffer. You know? It's kind of like when I was in two-a-days down in Livingston. Y'all think it gets hot up here. You don't know hot. Go west and south just a little ways on the map. In that river basin known as the Warrior River Basin, the Tom Bibby River Basin, all those rivers can All that water can't mean but one thing in August. Humidity. And it, you know what I used to tell people? Those, fret, you know, those young guys, as they come in, we, 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 we they're practicing and they're over there. They want to take a break all the time. And I'd always say, if I got to suffer, you got to suffer. <laughs> Don't stand over there with your hat in your hand, drinking on a water bottle. No, no. Put that up. If I got to suffer, you got to suffer. And so I take that mentality when I come to verses like this. If I got to suffer all week and the weeks that have led to this week, you're going to suffer for about 25 to 30 minutes. Count yourself lucky. <laughs> and if God is so pleased, you'll suffer throughout the rest of this day. You'll suffer for weeks to come over an agonizing thing. And that is, you've told us there's life. You've told us there's eternal life. How does it impact me? You ought to agonize over that. I don't care if you've been in church all your life and heard message after message on salvation. The gospel should confront you fresh every time it's spoken. Am I in Christ or am I not? It's all that matters. It's all of life right there. Am I in Christ or am I not? Am I in life or am I in death? Am I in freedom with no condemnation, or am I sitting in judgment and condemnation? It's one or the other. It's daylight and dark. It's a contrast that I hope we'll see, and you'll see clearly as we look at this passage in 25 through 29. It was read earlier, so we won't take the time to do that. I want to make two 
big points and, and then underneath them several points. First of all, we must be raised from the dead by Jesus. We must be raised from the dead by Jesus. That's straight from John's wording here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. These are the words of Jesus. An hour is coming and now is. You see that? And now is here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He gives authority to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. We must be raised from the dead by Jesus. You see, that lame man or paralyzed guy, however you see him there at Bethesda, really, he has little to do with us because he's in a different culture and he's face-to-face with a personal Christ there and a physical ministry and he's healed physically. And we're not talking about physical in these verses, are we? We're talking about spiritual. But that's the word picture for us. That's the picture for us of salvation. The lame man, the paralyzed man, back there in the first part of John 5, is the, exa- the living example of what Jesus says in 25, 26, and 27. It's the living example. I want you to take a notice of this man. And then I want to make some points here under this. He's in a multitude of sick people. He's not by himself at this pool. There are hundreds of people gathered there. Jesus did not come indiscriminately to all of those people. He came to that man among all those sick people. He could have spoken. Listen, Jesus Christ could have stood up before all those people and said, hear these words, you are healed. And all of them would have been healed. But that's not what He does, is it? In that passage, He goes to that man specifically. And says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Is that a desire you have? He comes to a particular man with a particular message of healing. And it is continual. Once it's done, it's done. There's no reverting here. He doesn't lose it, in other words. Though there's a warning, which also applies to the spiritual part we're going to talk about. And that is, go and sin no more lest something worse come upon you. Okay? All of those physical things that happened in the first part of 5 come out in 25 through 27. Jesus said, getting our attention, getting the, reader, the, the reader's attention, and getting his audience, his first audience's attention. That repeating, truly, truly. He's, he's saying this is utterly important. If you hadn't listened to the rest, you've heard the preacher say, if you hadn't listened to anything else I said... Hear this. That's what he's saying right here. Hear this. And so this is the crux of the message. This is crucial to our life. Jesus has to raise us from the dead. The resurrection hour is here. Look in 25. An hour is coming and is now here. That hour of resurrection is not one that is coming. The one he's talking of has already come. In Matthew 4, verse 17, after his temptation and trial in the desert, Jesus leaves that place and goes to his first audience and has a message. Repent, 
For the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. I'm the kingdom. You reject me, you reject God. That was what he was saying. You reject me, you have no part in that city. I am the kingdom. I've brought it to the earth. It's it's here. People talk about the judgment day. Everybody in our culture is focused on this apocalyptic ending to the world. Go to the movie store. There's movies all over the place about it. People are fascinated, Christian and non-Christian, with how this world's going to end. Our political campaign revolves around what amounts to scientific apocalypse. Global warming, man-made global warming. The whole world is looking for this catastrophic ending to this ball that we rotate on around the sun. The world's coming to an end. That's the message of the world and really the church. It's all coming to an end. Okay? Though we may disagree on how it comes to an end, everybody's focused on it. And aren't you? It could happen today. It could happen while I'm speaking. It could happen tomorrow. Aren't you concerned with how it ends? I am. And I think it's the question of life, really. And that's why Jesus emphasizes it here. The hour of judgment, the hour is here. The hour of resurrection is here. When, he says, that's this hour that's here, what will happen? All of those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. I want to say to you, the spiritual resurrection is the first resurrection. Now, as I launch into this uh, meet here, I want to admit up front that I I, I have a a view of the Scripture, which maybe you hold a different view here on these things. But I want to, I, I take the simplest approach to the Word of God. Believe it literally. When it says it, In a genre which is literal, which this one is, a speech of Christ, it's not a parable, I'm left to believe that what he says is absolutely true. And so when he says the hour is here, now, I believe that's what he means. I don't believe he's saying look out in the future. I believe he's saying right now it's here. And the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who believe will live. And so that leaves me with this belief about this teaching of Christ. And that is that the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. Okay? Follow me. Stay with me. Because it's going to make, I believe, perfect sense when we look at the whole text there. He says, if you hear, if the dead people, does that not, when the dead will hear. When the dead hear. Do dead people hear? Think of the contradiction on its face of that statement. The dead hear. I've seen a lot of dead people. Unfortunately, in my way of life, I get to visit people who've either lost a loved one, about to lose a loved one. I've been in the room when they passed. I've even worked with my uncle in the summer when I was younger. Uh, coming into in the college, I worked for a little while in his as a mortician, he's a mortician, owner of a funeral home, and I've seen dead people. I've seen a lot of things about dead people. One thing I've never seen is dead people who hear. So I just told you I take it literally. So if that's what I take it as, then how can that be true? 
that dead people hear because physically dead people cannot hear, can they? They are dead. What can Jesus be saying? Well, it's no different than other places where he says, He who has ears, let him hear. How many people in Jesus' audience had ears? Do I get this answer? All of them. So obviously Jesus can't be talking about physical ears in those places. He has to be talking about something else. And he's actually drawing from the wording of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, who says that the people who are deaf will go on being deaf. They will not hear. And so he's saying when he's teaching right here, not that people are physically dead, but the people are spiritually dead. And he says those spiritually dead people, when they hear the voice of the Son of God, they will believe and they will live. They will be resurrected is the picture. You say, how can that be? I, I, I don't really understand you yet, Carlton. You, you, you're kind of making sense, but not completely. Hold your place in John chapter 5. And I don't want to run throughout all of the Bible looking at this concept, though it's all over the place, and we could do that. I want to just go to one passage. And that's in Paul's letter to, to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2. So if you'll turn there, we'll get a picture of what Jesus is talking about. Paul agreed with Jesus. Dead people have to hear if they will believe and if they will be saved if they will be resurrected to life. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Jesus says, The hour is coming and it's right now when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and believing in that voice, those who believe, those who hear will live. So we, we have this concept of dead people with Jesus and with Paul. And what is he saying? It's, it's simple for me to explain it in my own life. There was a point in time in which I was dead spiritually. Some of you identify with that. Some of you don't recognize that you're dead right now as I'm preaching. But hopefully by the power of God, by the time this is all over with today, beyond feeling convicted and all those things, you will know I was dead and now I'm alive. I was blind and now I see. Because there was a moment in my life in which I was dead Seeking after my own desire. That's the definition of a dead man spiritually. When we're born, we seek after our own desire and our own fulfillment. It happens physically and spiritually, right? Physically, a baby's born crying. Why? Because it wants its needs met. It's born selfish. It needs protection. It needs feeding. It needs a myriad of things. Holding and touching and talking. It needs all those things. And it's helpless, right? And it cries out, meet my needs. And I would say that same child as it grows up has that same experience spiritually. In their soul, in their inner man. The, the object of their life as a natural man is their own good pleasure. They're not looking out for their fellow man. They're looking out for number one. 
Isn't that the motto of our world? Look out above all else for the guy at the top, and that's you. Right? And so, that comes out in a lot of ways. They're dirty, rotten scoundrels. We all recognize them. They have some twisted, perverted, over-sensitive carnal mind. Maybe in the area of sexual pleasure or or anger. And it's so obvious to us. And they are murderers and they, they cheat on their wives regularly. And we say, that guy's wicked. He's only thinking about himself. Those are easy to identify. The ones that are difficult are those who in their nature want to feed their own desires, their own heart, but they disguise it with good works for other people. And that's a lot of you in here. We don't have very many outward murderers. I hope we have very few adult, true physical adulterers. But we have a lot of spiritual murderers and adulterers in this room. And Paul says everybody in this room at one point was that guy because we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We all are born with this desire deep in ourselves to be fulfilled in and of ourselves. We're not looking after God and His things, our own pleasures. Not God's pleasure, my pleasure. We're selfish like that little baby that cries. And so for some of you, crying spiritually comes out like this. You see that attractive person? They pass by. You lust after them in your heart. You know I can't go any further or the whole world's going to think I'm an evil person. So I'm going to disguise that and let it out, though, by complimenting that person's looks. Now, I'm not saying all compliments are motivated by lust, so don't be afraid. But the motivation of the heart is crucial here because there is that honest compliment. And then there is that, I kind of want this person to feel good about me, so I'm going to tell them they look nice. So they'll think, oh, he's so thoughtful. He's so kind. I wish my husband were like him. When those kinds of statements start coming out about you guys, you need to be real scared. You've crossed the line. You've sinned. You've made comments which are unwholesome and they've caused that person to lust after you now. And I'm telling you, that's an inward desire because we're all dead. Motivation of our heart is key. It comes out in a lot of ways. I don't want to just pick on that way. Working hard, which is an American way, right? You're supposed to work hard. Those lazy bums that don't work hard get what they deserve. And we say that's in the Bible somewhere. Why do you work hard? Is the motivation for your work the glory of God, His name being spread among your co-workers? Or is your motivation a dead motivation, which is I want everybody here to think I'm the hardest worker around. I put in more hours. I put in more effort. I'm more skilled. What's the motivation? And when you get to those motivation, that level, Forget the exterior. Go to the heart and the motivation that Jesus is really talking about death here. That's what He's talking about. Get down deep as best you can and beg God, show me why I do the things that I do. Because when you lay all those reasons out, if the majority of them is, I want people to like me, think good of me, love me, lust after me, they're all selfish in their nature, there's a problem.
a big problem. If it, my, my granddaddy used to say, and it's famous now, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's what? A duck. And what I'm telling you is if you get to the motivation of your heart and it's a lot of dead things, if it looks dead and it acts dead, it's probably dead. That's the reality Jesus is hitting these people with. You see, they all could notice that man was paralyzed laying there outwardly because he was outwardly paralyzed. They could say, He's, he needs help. What they couldn't see and what Jesus is trying to show them is the hour is now here when you need to realize you're dead. And unless you hear my voice with your inner man, you will remain dead. But if you hear it, you will live. Let that soak in for just a moment. Pause in your mental process and let that soak in. Jesus really is our only hope. John three fourteen through 21 Jesus in that discourse with Nicodemus says, The Son of Man must be lifted up, and all who look at Him and believe will have life. Like that serpent in the desert that was lifted up in Moses' day, Jesus was lifted up, and those who look to Him will have life. Why, why is that so crucial, Jesus? Because He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Verse 17. Everyone in verse 18 who is not in Christ is already condemned. You don't need to be condemned if you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior. You don't need to be condemned if you look internally and say, the motivation of who I am is for myself. It's selfishness. It is the flesh, it is the nature, it is I want people to like me because I just want them to like me. You don't have to be condemned. You are already condemned. Because you love the darkness more than you love the light, Jesus said. The light shined on the darkness and the darkness didn't want to comprehend it. It didn't want to accept it. So, Jesus is holding up something for us to look at. And He's saying, I'm speaking to you in reality, don't focus on that lame man over there that I just healed. The thing you need to take home is are you a dead man? And I'm going to ask you that question. I am asking you that question. I'm begging you to wrestle with that question. I don't care how safe you think you are in Christ. Wrestle with it. So it's a deep question. It's a hard question. Jesus is our only hope, He says. And He says plainly that the hour of resurrection is here. It is now. It's not coming. It is today. It's spiritual. We are being resurrected as we hear Him and we will live. Life is the, the, the life necessary for eternity belongs to Jesus. It's in His possession. Look at John 5.26. The Father has life in Himself, and He has given the Son also to have life in Himself. This really is a statement about the eternal nature of Jesus. He, in His very essence, is living. We aren't. John 1, 4 says Jesus gave us life. 
And that light is the light of men. In other words, whatever's living, Colossians 1.17 says, is living because Jesus holds it together by the power of His hand. It's alive because He says live. 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 At the moment He says cease, that's your cataclysmic end that everybody's longing to see. For some unknown reason, the world even longs to see it. I don't know why. Guess what they can say? I told you so while all the flames are coming up and this old world's burning away. They can say, see, I told you we were going to do it eventually. Live, Jesus says. Live, live, live. Just like He told Adam in the dust. Live. Breathe life into Him. He breathes life into us. We have our life. Paul says in Acts 17, we have our our very being, our very breath, it comes from Him. If He withdraws it even for a moment, we cease to exist. He is life. So that not only physically do we need Him for life, but eternally we need it. We need Christ for eternal life. This text tells us that. How does it tell us? It says, if you hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You need to hear Him. You need Him to speak over you. Live. As Ezekiel, as God told Ezekiel, look out over the valley. What do you see? Dry bones, dead. And God tells him something very similar to what Jesus says here. Son of man, prophesy to these dead Preach to these dead bones. Was that not a weird command? I struggle to preach to you sometimes because... You're very honest to me about my preaching. I want to be honest to you about your listening. Sometimes you look like dead, dry bones. That could be because of my preaching. I'll give you that. Or it could be another problem. You slept in sleep enough. Or it could be a myriad of things. I'm just being honest with you. Sometimes, as Ezekiel did, I look out and I think, what good is this doing? And then, I don't feel a wind but a point's made from the Scripture. And those things that seem to be almost dead holding their Bibles, life comes. The aha moment, as the world calls it, the light bulb going on, spiritually, that is life. And when that happens, the very first time, you will live forever. Jesus says, if you hear me, you'll live. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you long to know what I'm talking about. You've never experienced it. So I want to make it clear. How will I have eternal life? Only if God in His great grace speaks to your spiritual dead ears and says, Live. Live. At that moment, you will be exuberant. You will jump, leap like those bones did in that valley. And the same Spirit that made them alive will make you alive. And your first response will be, I believe in Jesus Christ. See, belief doesn't bring life. God brings life, which brings belief in His Son, Jesus Christ. Dead men can't believe. Jesus didn't say, if you're dead, believe, and then you'll hear, and then you'll be saved. Jesus said, If you hear me, you will live. And the implication from the verse just above that is, if you live, you'll believe. Don't miss it. Paul didn't say, we all were walking according to the flesh, and then we heard the wisdom 
of the Word of God in our physical self. And we said, oh, that sounds good. I'll take it. And God was bound then to save them by their belief. That's not what He says. He says we were all dead. All of us. But God, verse 4, great and rich in mercy, showing His love to us. While we were still sinners, He said in Romans 5, Christ died for us. He showed us His love. He didn't just talk about it. He showed it. He says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourself. Faith is not of yourself. Grace is not of yourself. It is God's. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Listen, if the order was you were dead and you then believed of your own power and then God was bound to save you, you would say, oh boy, I'm smart. But all boasting's been put away by the cross, he says in 1 Corinthians 1. All boasting has been put away. By what law has it been put away? By the law of grace and the cross. Why? Because dead people, paralyzed people, all of us the same. No difference. Just like that paralyzed man at the pool. And Jesus walked up to you and said, Do you want what I have? And even our answers weren't good. Well, yeah, but I'm trying. I'm getting there. I'm working hard. No, no. Take up your bed and walk. Live. Live. That is the resurrection. I want to tell you, if you've experienced it, you know it's true. You are alive today. And you are well because of Him. The power of judgment is also given to Him. In the same way, in verse 27, the power of judgment is given. Not only has the power been granted to Him to give you life, it also has been granted to Him to execute His judgment. Now he says he's the Son of Man there. And you say, but I thought he said the Son of God. Now these are two titles of the same man, Jesus Christ. Because he, while being fully God, is also fully man. That first title is his least favorite title for himself. Only three times in John's Gospel will you hear Jesus say he is the Son of God. Over and over again you hear him say, I'm the Son of Man. Why? Why? Jot down Daniel chapter 7. That's where that title appears the first time in the Scripture for us. The ancient of that. We often think, we often think about the Son of Man as some second title. Like the Son of God's up here and then B title would be the Son of Man. No, they're equal. They're the same. It's the same coin from two directions. What is the Son of God? Because He in the beginning was with God. He was God. That's it. That's the Son of God. That same one that is the Son of God is the Son of Man. And who is the Son of Man? He is the one who humbled Himself, took on our carcass, walked on the earth where we live, made Himself a servant even to the point of death on a cross and was raised up by the power of God and exalted above everyone else so that at His name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord that guy is the Son of Man. That man, he is a man. We, Aaron was saying, I, I struggle to call him a friend. Well, we often struggle to call him a man. He is a man, 100%. And he's God, 100%. And so we have both titles given to it here. It's interesting, though, that the Son of Man brings judgment. 
Jesus is often seen, and He's the only one seen to judge others. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Jesus is seen judging the sheep and the goats. He separates them, right? Matthew 13, 24 through 30. It's Jesus who gives the command to bind up the tares and throw them in hell and bind up the wheat and bring it into the barn. That's Jesus because God's trusted him with judgment. So the power of life and the power of judgment are all in him. The spiritual death that we all are born into requires a resurrection. I want to make this real for you. So I'm, I'm going to use an Old Testament passage, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Man was created in innocence, but he soon fell. And he didn't just fall spiritually. God said, in the day you eat that tree, of that tree, you will surely die, completely die. All of you will. The temptation was there. They took it, and did they die? Well, let's see. Spiritually, we know they died. Why? Because they saw that they weren't innocent anymore. Their soul was no longer without sin or corruption. Why? Because they hid from God. They ran and hid. They won't have communion. They were made for communion and now their soul couldn't commune with Him. They were separated. Physically they died. We know that because we're told in the Scripture that Adam lived a long life and then he died. Dust you were made from and dust you shall return. Complete and utter death. Spiritual, soulful, and bodily. All of it died at the moment that Adam ate of that tree. All of us inherited that. All of us did. And so what did we need? Well, we need a resurrection. And so Jesus is talking here in John 25, 25 through 27. You need the spiritual resurrection, Jesus says. He needs to raise you spiritually. You say, I'm dead. You're right. It's at the moment He raises you that you're alive. You need communion with Him. I can't have it. I'm dead. What, how do he has to give it to you. He has to come to you and have a relationship with you. Make you capable of having a relationship. We need physical resurrection. You had not talked anything about it today. It's coming. How do we know? Because he didn't end with this spiritual resurrection. He ends with a final resurrection. Look at 28 through 29. Jesus says, don't be amazed at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We all face the coming final judgment of Christ. All of us do. And he says it plainly here. See, the first part of this paragraph is about a spiritual life that you need so that you can have joy in the next resurrection. If you don't have that first resurrection, that first life, you can't have eternal life. Don't be amazed at this, Jesus says. The hour is coming Look in your text. Does he say the hour is coming and now is here? No. 
He said that about the first resurrection. He didn't say it about this resurrection. Why? Because the kingdom came the first time when Christ was on the earth. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that day is continuing even now. The day of grace is continuing even now. People are being added into that kingdom by the droves around the world. But there's coming a day, Jesus says in this passage, don't marvel that I said this, the hour is coming. It's not here right now, but it is coming in the future. When those who are in the tomb, you see the difference? In the first part, He said those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and after they hear it, they will live. But here He doesn't talk about hearing a voice as a spiritual thing. He hears it as a physical thing, a tomb. In other words, He's talking about everybody is dead physically. And that hour is coming when He will speak and all those people will come forward. All of them. It's interesting here that He turns quickly to the judgment that is to come because that's what our world doesn't like to focus on. Travel this world on the internet even, like I do, because I don't get to travel much. Nobody preaches about this resurrection anymore. Very few. It'll scare people. I hope it does. It ought to. Saved or lost, it ought to strike fear in hearts. Proper fear of God. That, okay, I have this eternal life, but now what, what, is it, what am I being rescued from? We talk about grace and we separate it as if they don't need to know what they're being saved from. How can they be saved from something they don't know about? We have to preach this judgment. The day is coming whether we like it or not, the world likes it or not, believes it or not, when Christ will judge the dead. All of those in the tomb will raise up. He will raise them up. He will call them forward. And He will judge them. He will base it on their works. Judgment in the New Testament and in the Old is always on works. It's not justification apart from works. You're justified to work. When we stand before God Almighty in the form of His Son Jesus Christ on that day, we will come to Him in answer of what we have done in this life. We'll all come there. And what will distinguish the sheep from the goat? Matthew 25 says their works distinguish them. We should be careful when we talk about grace. I had lunch with Stephen Stout this week. He had no idea this was the message today. He said, since I've been to church, all these things you said are great, but they're also theological. They're up here. Where's the practical? Stephen, here's the practical. This is it. Because see, if you have right theology and no works, you don't have right theology. The judgment that is coming is based on the life that is lived. At the second resurrection, everyone will stand before Jesus. It's right there. Everyone will stand before Him. Everyone in the tomb, all that are dead, will rise and stand before Him. At the second resurrection, everyone will be judged by His work. Look in 29. Those who did good to life and those who did evil to death, to condemnation, to judgment. 
Salvation is always by grace alone. Don't lose it. It's always by grace alone. Not denying that. Through faith alone. But faith works. Paul said in Titus chapter 2 verse 14 that he saved us. Set us apart as a people so that we would be zealous unto good works. We want to do them. We long for it. James, as the Sunday school class mentioned, says, the brother of Jesus, you show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. The Hebrew, Bruce pointed out in that hour, does not recognize faith without works. Faith is faithfulness in the Hebrew. When God says faith, He means faithfulness. Obedience. What am I saying? Obedience shows love. You can't separate them like we want to so often in our circles. We're afraid of this concept. But in Matthew 25, Jesus never shies away from it. He says... On that day they'll stand before me and I will say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. And they say, Why don't, why don't you know us? We've done all these things. And he says, Because I was naked and you did not clothe me. Because I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Because I was in prison and you did not come to me. I was hungry and you gave me no food. What does that sound like to you? It's obvious, isn't it? Zealous to good works. He says, don't come here before this throne talking about how you love me and you did not live love. I don't know you. To the sheep, he says, come into your rest. Why? Why do they need rest? Because they had lived this life of obedience. It's not an easy life. It's a struggle. It's a fight. But it's necessary so that we can enter the kingdom of God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, but it saves us to do His good pleasure in His work. Ephesians 2.10 The cause of our salvation is faith and grace, but the result is fruit. That great passage we quote all the time in our theology about how grace and faith is a work of God, look what it says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You come to me and say, okay, boil it down for me. Make it simple. You're ending. We're coming to the end of this time. I'm feeling beat up. I'm scared now. Because I look at my life and there's an absence of all these things. I want to say something. I hope you hear it spiritually. The way we know we are in Christ is the fruit that comes from our life. People talk about, I want assurance of salvation. I want assurance of salvation. First of all, assurance is not promised as if we will all have equal measures of it. The dollar bill mentality, I wrote the date down, I'm saved. I know it. Doesn't exist in the Bible. Paul says, work out your own salvation. Struggle to stand firm. Struggle. What's the struggle about, Paul? Because he was continually, when he heard the gospel, looking at his life and saying, does my life match it? Am I obedient to him? If not, then I don't love him. I am made apparently, obviously, not a believer if my life isn't bearing this fruit. Galatians 5, 16-24 says, the fruit of the Spirit 
are these things. Faith, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Right? So you say, how do I measure it? Protestants, like Stephen said, we run from these passages. First John, this same writer says, you will be known by being obedient. That's the, one of the proofs of salvation. Is if, Are you obedient? If you're not, then don't claim Him. That's the crux of John 3, 1 John 3. How do I judge it? I'm a failure. It's in Christ. See, the thing is, is that we are the dead living, not the living dead. The dead living are those who have been resurrected by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ Jesus alone. But when that happens, life bears fruit. We don't have to produce it. It is produced. It is a result automatically of the new life. It's not something we work for. It happens. You can't help it. Your mind is transformed and your actions are transformed so that you find yourself doing all this stuff that you never would have been motivated to do before. What's happened to me? I'm a new creature. That's the picture of the New Testament. I'm a new creature. And so it's only right, as I say to you, the resurrection is coming to say, how do I know I'm ready for it? You've got to look at yourself. Inwardly take a look at what is the outflow of my life, death or life. Because I'm telling you, if it's death, if it looks like death, it acts like death, it's, it's death. At the second resurrection, only those who took part in the first resurrection will have joy. I don't have time to get into this concept except to say that this same resurrection, I believe, is depicted for us in Revelation. This same writer writes about it. And he says that those who have part in the first regeneration have joy. They have joy. So you say, I'm a Christian and i got to stand before Jesus. I'm afraid. Well, but you have joy also. And I want to close with this parable written by Randy Alcorn. I think it makes sense of what I've said today. I hope it does. Listen to what he said. I'm going to read it to you because I don't want to mess it up. So follow me even though I'm not looking at you. They're travelers on a journey, and they're met by the king's messenger. She gives them burlap sacks and instructions to fill them with stones from the riverbeds they'll cross at night. Then she leaves them with the cryptic words, In the morning, you will be both glad and sad. But in the morning, they're unable to open their bags and see what's inside. In fact, throughout the journey... They're only able to open the bags at night when they choose to add more stones. Nick is reluctant to follow these apparently senseless instructions. Isn't the added weight of these worthless rocks just an unnecessary burden for a weary traveler? Later, as they finally near the city, they're met again by the messenger and told to present their gifts to the king. Gifts, the travelers say. Yes, the stones you picked up in the riverbeds. My heart pounded. I put down my worn sack just over half full. I pulled out a stone. It glimmered in the sunlight. It's gold. I reached back in the sack. Silver, rubies, diamonds, emeralds. I've never seen anything like this one. 
Vaguely aware of the others shouting around me, I looked up to see them rifling through their bags, holding up precious stones in the rosy sunlight. I reached further into my bag and found what I thought were some little stones. I pulled them out and stared at them. They're not stones at all, I said. They're just crumpled balls of straw. I turned the bag upside down. One last gem fell out, a small one. The rest was straw and stubble. The contents from Nick's sack are then placed on a grate above a raging bonfire. The fire immediately consumes the straw. While it burned off impurities from the gold and the silver and gems, they glowed with an ever otherworldly beauty. And I stared at them breathlessly, held captive by radiance. Nick saw the stones from his companion's sack. From one he sees dozens of precious gems, perhaps 20 diamonds and chunks of gold and silver. Another companion whom Nick was thought, always thought was dull-witted had filled and carried two sacks in his journey. Here he was, Nick discovers, with three times as many precious stones as I. An angel's voice whispers to Nick, Choice and Consequences. What is done in one world has profound effects on the next. Then they observe the angel beginning to forge their fire, refined stones into crowns. You will cast these at the king's feet, the travelers are told. And sometimes you will wear them. The king and all the citizens of that city will be forever reminded of their faithful service. You will remember the meaning of every stone and so will he. Elion's book says, A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the king and honored his name. All your works are recorded there. Every cup of cold water given in his name. Nick stares at his gemstones and sees animated images within each one of them. Pictures that portray each of his prayers and other good deeds. Some long forgotten, done in service to the king. Finally, he understands those cryptic words of the king's messenger. The long night was over. Morning was here at last. I looked at the stones I'd picked up, knowing that they were my tribute to the king. Seeing them, I'd never felt so glad. Then I thought about the stones within my reach. All those I could have picked up but didn't. I'd never felt so sad. And I suggest to you that is what the judgment will be like for us. Saved by faith, by grace, there's no fear of hell for us, believer. But when we stand before Him, our lives exposed to His refining fire, we will at last see that what we thought were burdensome rules were really just opportunities to obey and to gather crowns for our King so that we might lay them at His feet so that we might have greater joy in His presence and so we might go throughout eternity saying, thank God for His grace that He prepared for me before I got there so that I could pick them up. And we'll also remember the times we passed them by for all of eternity. I don't think that will ever go away. 
will say, I could have picked that one, but I didn't. I thought it was too heavy. It was too hard. I wasn't willing to submit to the Lord and be obedient. And so that one passed me by. Lost man here, that's the least of your worries. Because when you come to Him, your sack will be empty. You'll dig fervently looking for the gems you see the sheep pulling out. And all this there is wood and hay and stubble. And the master will look off his throne and say, I don't know who you are. Leave. But I did a lot of good stuff. I went to church. I, I was good to my wife. I loved my kids. I, I, I told others about you. Matthew 7. I don't know who you are. And what's the difference? What makes a gem precious and stubble worthless? Because see, as you're walking through that parable with Nick and with the others, it's not your own strength that causes you to pick these things up. It's His strength. It's your work through His work. So Christian, as we come to the end, how is it with you? You're passing them by, left and right, these good things that God has prepared for you that you could partake in, but you're not? I beg you, they may be burdensome in this world. They may seem strange in this world, but in the next, they are beautiful. And they are crowns for our King. Pick them up on the journey picked him up. Lost man, forget that. Because when you get to him, all that will matter is I never knew you. And I pray God speak to your ears so that you might hear and be saved and live in the first resurrection. Looking for the second resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we've been here some time. We've looked at a a, a great but yet ominous looking from the outside truth. Lord, I, I confess that um, in my nature I am weak, dead, blind, helpless. But thank you for resurrection and power, life abundant, and all of these great opportunities to obey. Done in your name, they are precious in your sight. So I thank you for them. But I pray for those who are lost, Lord, that you would that you would come to them and that you would speak life over them, and that their dead carcass would live with your life. Help us to take look at our life and know whether we be in Christ or outside of Christ. Help us to know. Reveal it to us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.